This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome to another edition of the Prologue on America's Web Radio, a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not be familiar with. My name is Doug Dahlgren. I'll be your host for this next hour. I'm an author myself. I've got eight fiction novels that are out there, action thrillers you might just enjoy. They're available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all the online sites, and, of course, on my personal website, www.dougdahlgren.com. Now, we call this show the prologue because that's just what it is. It's an introduction. And while those introduced here are mainly writers, we love to bring you interesting people with a good story to tell from other fields and other endeavors as well. Now, if you are sitting there without a pen or a pencil, I want you to grab one. Because, you know, there's going to be some interesting things that we bring up throughout this show, and some you're going to want to make note of, like this, for instance. If you or someone you know has that book or that interesting story that needs to be on the air, I want you to reach out to me through email. There's two ways you can do that. There is Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com or Doug at DougDahlgren.com. I'd love very much to speak with you about being on a future program, so please make note and reach out to that friend if it's not you yourself. Now, our author this hour is a prolific writer. He's a historian and, above all, a creative thinker. Born and educated in California, he has lived and worked in Alaska for over 40 years, teaching, working for the state, working in politics there. He has also been a successful freelance writer for many of those years, writing proposals, grants, technical reports, manuals, speeches, and above all, books. Some fiction, some historical. And in all, 80. That's right, 8-0. Before we bring him on, please allow me to recognize a couple of very special groups of listeners that we're so proud that we have here on the Prologue in America's Web Radio. Men and women in our armed forces stationed around the world, working hard and putting us and putting it all on the line each day to keep us safe here back home. Freedom's not free, people. It's bought and paid for by these brave troops, and we thank them for their service and sacrifice as well as for being listeners. The other group I want to mention, and let's not forget, those first responders here at home, the police, fire, rescue personnel, those who rush to our aid, when we need their help. We honor them, we thank them, and we thank them for all they do. Now, our guest today, as I said earlier, has written 80 books. His name is Steve Levi. His latest novel he calls The Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound. And this is your prologue. Four bank robbers disappear with 12 hostages and a tiny sum of $10 million. Disappear is the key word in this mystery novel because they disappear in a Greyhound bus on the Golden Great Bridge. Not over the side, not turning around, they simply vanish. The local police, at a complete loss as to where to begin the investigation, turn to the nation's foremost specialist in impossible crime. This North Carolina police captain is summoned, actually off a vacation trip to Alaska, and he's rerouted to San Francisco. Captain Hines Noonan must determine who's who, who's involved, and what happened in the matter of the vanishing greyhound. 
The author, Steve Levi, is with us by phone from his home in Alaska. Good morning. How are you, Steve? I'm doing just fine. And how are you doing down there in Georgia? We're fine. We're happy to have you on. Very proud to have you. Uh, listen, this is number 80. How many typewriters and computer keyboards have you burned up along the way? Well, I started writing back in the 60s, and the uh, the key to getting books done is to finish them. A lot of people start on books, and they work on them for a long time and put them aside for a while, you know, and then come back to them. I, I write about two hours a day, and I pride myself on finishing. So what happens is you can finish it, and then you put it aside, and then and then bring it out. Amazon has been wonderful because a lot of the books that I have written, I can't find uh and uh, paper, ink and paper publishers for, but I can load them up onto Amazon. So Amazon has been really a, a benefit uh, for me, and now that I'm on the computer, it makes it a lot easier. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, with all spell check and everything else, it does absolutely makes it easier. How you guys did it on typewriters in the old days, I really don't know. Uh, the matter of the vanishing greyhound. Now, a vanishing bus with people and money on board, that's a rather complicated scenario. How long did it take you to lay out and write this complicated storyline? Well, I was living in San Francisco for a brief time in the 70s when I was working on my first book, and I was always fascinated with the uh, Golden Gate Bridge because of the, uh, the construction of it, because it was kind of the wonder of the world at the time. And I walked across it and drove around it, and I was saying, boy, it would really be interesting to go ahead and do a novel that involves the, the Golden Gate Bridge and something unusual. And what I did is I spotted the, uh, I, I spotted the possibility of a Greyhound bus disappearing on it because it's very, very hard for a, it's very, very hard for something large to disappear anywhere. And go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like you've got one of those magicians involved there taking care of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, the, the thing about magicians is misdirection. And all, all of magic is misdirection. You're watching one thing while something else is happening. Um, like a magician, when a magician says, hey, let me show you this trick, the trick is already set up. You know, but the key is, most of the time, the magicians, you're sitting in a room and you're expecting the magician to perform magic. When it comes to the police, they're not expecting a bus to disappear. And so a lot of things get left in the, you know, a lot of things you're following a usual procedure, and the procedure you're following, the bad guys already know about it, and so they've figured out some way to bypass it. So while okay. the police are looking at one thing, the, the bad guys are doing something else, and the police can't figure it out right away. And we don't want to give away the story, but there's a whole lot of that involved here. The, the Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound is what you call an impossible crime novel. Now, being fiction and impossible, uh, why would anybody take such a story seriously? Um, most of your, when you first started talking about uh, crime fiction back in the old days, we're talking about Sherlock Holmes. Most of those were impossible crimes. Somebody would come to Sherlock Holmes and he would say, we, we have this problem that we can't figure out and Sherlock Holmes would look at it, and then he would solve it. Um, today, when you start talking about mystery, if you walk into a bookstore and go to the mystery section, almost all of it is murders. And I don't, I'm not particularly interested in murders. I'm particularly interested in people being very, very clever. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to go ahead and do books where the crooks are clever, but the detective has to be much more clever than they are and figure it out. 
and it's the figuring it out that makes makes something interesting. Now, your belief is that an impossible crime story actually holds the reader's attention better than a traditional mystery. Yes, because you're looking at two different things at the same time. While the detective is trying to solve the crime, he's also trying to figure out how how the the criminals did it. How can you make a bus disappear off the Golden Gate Bridge, and particularly in full view of, of the police? So while you're the reader, not only do you have to keep an eye out for the little clues that, that come trickling in to help the detective solve the crime, you also have to keep an eye out for the clues that come in to tell you how they actually did it. So it's actually a double book. Okay. Now, history is one of your favorite fields of study, but a close second to that would be this creative thinking. Explain what you mean by creative thinking, would you? Sure. Most when you start talking there are problems in life there are problems and there are difficulties a difficulty is something that comes up where you sit down and you solve the difficulty and you move on a problem is something that comes up that you cannot solve um, by doing logical rational thinking um, a good example would be suppose that you are a uh, a high school teach a high school principal and you come walking into your office on monday morning and you look out your window, and here the flagpole has 30 tires around it. So over the weekend, somebody has some some of your students have gotten a crane, and they put 30 tires over the over the flagpole. You've got to get those tires off the flagpole, but you don't have the money to hire a helicopter or a crane, and you can't use a chainsaw because it's too difficult. But you've still got to get the tires off that flagpole. So how do you do it? Now, logically and rationally. You would look at it and say, well, I've got a tire problem. I have to figure out how to get rid of the tires. As long as you're thinking that this is a tire problem, you're not going to be able to solve it because you don't have the money to get a uh, crane to, to, get it, to get the tires off. So what you do is you stop thinking about being a creative thinker. You stop thinking about this being a tire problem, and you start thinking about it being a flagpole problem. And the way that this, this is actually a true case, what the, uh, they solved it by getting a forklift, raising the tires up enough to unscrew the flagpole off the uh, foundation, and then they just removed the flagpole. <laughs> as, as long as you are looking, as long as you are looking at a problem the way that everybody else does, you won't solve it. So what you have to do is you have to change your way of thinking. Now, is this what people refer to as thinking out of the box? So, yeah, thinking out of the box just means... Most people think that clever people are born. That's not true. You can train yourself to be a clever person, and you can train yourself to be think to think out of the box. The most important thing is to stop thinking logically and rationally when you have a problem. Change your perspective. All right, so now this is the technique that you just described, the technique that you use in, in writing your impossible crime stories, like the matter of the vanishing greyhound. Is that right? Right, because the, the police are concentrating on the Greyhound. They're not concentrating on the bad guys. They're trying to figure out what happened. And as long as they're trying to figure out what happened and trying to figure out logically and rationally how a Greyhound bus can disappear off the Golden Gate Bridge, they're not really looking for the bad guys. They think it's part and parcel of the same problem. The detective comes in and says, okay, fine, you know, there's some other issues that we have to look at. For instance, if you've got a greyhound and you've got hostages and money, why do you still need the hostages if you've already got the money? True. Very good. 
you know, so what happens is the detective is looking at this and saying, "There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts here." You know, I can't get, I can't be, I can't focus on any one. I have to solve all of them at the same time. Gotcha. Now, so I write, the police, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I write uh, thrillers, and there's a lot of moving parts in that. There's a lot of plot twists and things of that nature. What well, with this t- type of story, are you? Is it necessary for you to have all of those plot t- plot twists? Say that a couple of times, all laid out in advance, or can the characters lead you? And, and authors know what I'm talking about. Can your characters lead you along through the writing and develop other plot twists, or does that fit into this creative thinking that, that you're describing for us? I start, out, I start out with an idea that I think is impossible, and then I try to make it possible. And as I start writing, the characters will take over, and they'll add some extra, you know, extra twists and turns. But more or less, what I do with an impossible crime, I try to figure out how you can set something up for an impossible crime. My current book, for instance, that will, that will be coming out before the end of the year, we have a, a plane that lands at an airport, and when, after it lands, um, they cannot raise the pilot to open the door, and they get inside, and the plane is completely empty. There's no crew, no passengers, and no pilot. Now they have to figure out how you can fly a plane with nobody in it and what happened to the passengers because they all got on in Seattle and they didn't get off in Anchorage, so what happened to them? <laughs> and so and from there you have to sit down and say, okay, how did it happen? How did they do it? And why did they do it? Because there's always the why. Well, we're going to have to hear more about that as we go on through the show here. Uh, but right now it's getting time that we uh, load up and take a short break. We're talking this morning on the prologue with Mr. Steve Levi, and we're talking about his impossible mystery book, Impossible Crime, The Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound. And we're going to be back with more from Steve after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back on the prologue. We're here this morning talking long distance. In fact, uh, I calculated it. It's 4,295 miles from my location to the location where Mr. Steve Levy is, Levi is with us. I did it, Steve. I said I wasn't going to, but I did. Steve <laughs> Levi 
And his great book that we're talking about is one of 80 that he has written. Uh, it's The Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound. Steve, before we get wrapped up in conversation again, tell the folks out there where they can find out more about you and all of your books. Well, you can buy my books on Amazon, Amazon.com, and I also have a website, stevelevibooks.com, and it's got my uh, it's got a selection of books there. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's just Steve at stevelevibooks.com, and I'm very very happy to respond to emails. So if you have any questions, go ahead and shoot me an email, and I will respond. Okay, and so that's Steve at stevelevibooks. Altogether.com. Right. Excellent. Right. Very good. And I can tell you, folks, he is responsive. He'll get right back to you. So take take advantage of that. Now, before the break, we were talking about this book, The Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound. Steve calls it an impossible crime story. And we were talking about uh, the plot line and the good guys and the bad guys. And, of course, here the object of this show is to get you interested so that you'll buy it. So we're not going to go too deep into this mystery and how it was solved. But what I would like to go into, Steve, with you is the research. How did you research the details? So there's a lot about the banking and insurance businesses in this book and, and the other things about San Francisco. How did you dig all that up? Um, when I started out as a writer, I was going to school in California, and I did my master's thesis on San Francisco, on an aspect of San Francisco. And it was back in the days when banking was just starting, and so I had to learn a lot about banking, the beginnings of banking and how banking started, particularly in large cities. And over the years, I have kept that up, trying to understand how the banking industry and the insurance industry works from a historical perspective, not the nuts and bolts of what happens, but why it happens and some of the mistakes that have been made along the way. And in living in San Francisco, you get used to the streets, and if particularly if you're into history, you know what happened on these different areas of the city. But banking has been a very, very big part of San Francisco, still is. And, you know, historically what happened is I picked up the information and said, gee, I wonder if, you know, and how come, you know, and what would happen if. And then there's the, the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, that if you live in San Francisco, that is the icon of the city. Oh yeah, and after after you go over it, you know, a number of times, you begin. I begin looking at it and saying, you know, I wonder if it'd be possible to disappear off the bridge because, you know, I mean, that's one of those. If a Greyhound bus goes onto the bridge, and you close off both ends, it's supposed to be on the bridge. But if it's not there, how come it's not there? And that's how I started thinking about how you could make it disappear. What is the travel time across that bridge? Average average vehicle travel time. Well, if you're traveling at 60 miles an hour, it'll take you about six to ten, six to eight minutes. So there was plenty so of time. Yeah, there was plenty of time for authorities to close it off, right? Oh yeah. Well, what happens is the uh, the the bank robbers have told the uh, the police that they want to go to the international airport, which is fine because the police just wanted them out of the building. And then they started driving all over San Francisco and said they wanted to go to Sausalito, which made the police really happy because Sausalito is on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. So they just closed off the north end of the bridge and allowed the bus to drive onto the south end of the bridge and then closed off the south end. The problem is when they got onto the bridge, the bus wasn't there. Yeah. Now, we're getting close to getting into the story, and we want the readers to read it. So, But I do want to go to your hero. The protagonist of this story is Captain Heinz Noonan of North Carolina. Thank you for your... Uh tip of the hat to the south there in this we appreciate it now Hines doesn't carry a gun correct 
Tell us about that, and, and what more can you tell us about Captain Noonan without giving too much away? Um, I started out doing impossible crime stories, and you can find some of them. And if you punch up my name on uh, on Google, you can find that I've got some stories out there. And I was primarily interested in coming up with someone who solved very, very odd crimes, or crimes like one of the crime. One of the stories that I recently finished was a reverse burglar. It's somebody who breaks into homes and leaves things there, valuable things. And so somebody will call Heinz Noonan and say, why is somebody breaking into a building and leaving something valuable? Burglars usually break in, steal something valuable, and leave with it. Why would somebody be breaking into a home and leaving something valuable? And then Heinz Noonan has to figure out, okay, what's the angle here? Now, we've credited him as being from North Carolina, but with a name like Heinz Noonan, is he first generation? What is his background? Well, my, uh, he, is, he is German, but my, uh, my wife is from North Carolina. She's from Buxton. I don't know if, if your listeners know where that is. That's on the Outer Banks. Oh, sure. That's where, that's where Cape Hatteras is. Right. And my wife grew up out there, and I have spent some time out on the Outer Banks, and I'm very fascinated by it. And I was also fascinated by the mix, the ethnic mix of people out there, because these are the descendants of um, gun runners, uh, deserters from the Union and Confederate Army, moonshiners, um, survivors of shipwrecks, and it's a it's a really a, a ethnic mix out there. And so Heinz Noonan would fit right in out there because that's just the way that it is in the Outer Banks. <laughs> and. <laughs> And he develops, of course, this reputation, obviously, uh, throughout the country for being able to solve these impossible crimes. That's how he gets picked out and sent to San Francisco. Right. He's, he, he, in the short stories I do, I've got about 50 short stories out, and one of them is called, a collection of them is called the Dinkerstone Diamonds, which you can also get on uh, Amazon. But people call him up with, with, with unusual crimes or unusual situations, sometimes they're not even crimes, but nobody knows really how to go about solving them. So they said, well, just call Heinz Noonan and tell him. Maybe he can explain it to you, or maybe he can figure it out. But it's all creative thinking. It's this idea of don't think it, don't think normally. Try to figure out how, change your perspective to figure out how to solve this problem. Now, I believe you refer to him as the Bearded Holmes, so there's no secret there. But is, right. there, is there a real-life model for Heinz Noonan, or is he just a creation out of your own mind? Well, he's a creation out of my own mind. Uh, when I started doing my mysteries, what I wanted to do is something that was completely different. And so I went out and read a bunch of mysteries and said, oh, well, there's nobody who's doing impossible crimes. They're doing what are called, people have done locked rooms. But a locked room is where they find a dead body in a room that's locked from the inside, and they have to figure out, you know, how how the person got out. But I was interested in something more uh, more complicated, like how can you how can you rob a bank from the inside and get away with it? You know, how can you break into a vault, take stuff, and leave, and have people not know you were even in the vault? You sit around with a beer in your hand and think up crazy stuff, don't you? Well, I sit around with a beer in my hand and I, I think of things that couldn't be, and then I try to figure out how I would do it if I, if I could sit down and had all of the time and, and uh, 
and technology that is available and see if it was possible to do it. Sometimes sometimes you can't. Sometimes you just come up with something you just can't do. It's absolutely fascinating, though, the, the storylines that you come up with and write out. And following this book through, uh, listeners out there, you're going to want to get The Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound as a starter, just to get you teased into Steve's books, because the, the way this story unfolds, and the way you're brought to the conclusion is just something you can't put it down. It's just an amazing story. Uh, the Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound is fiction, obviously. But, Steve, you've also written nonfiction as well. Is is there a preference? Do you like one over the other? Um, no, I'm, I actually come at my writing from a different angle. What I do is I try to find something that is unusual or different because the when you pick up a lot of history books, they're really kind of the same. And they don't really tell you a story. I'm looking for something that is completely different or something that you look at and say, you know, I've never really heard of that. Um, like, for instance, here in Alaska, we've got all kinds of Alaska Gold Rush stories, but we also have a ghost ship. And the ghost ship is called the Claire Nevada. This is a, I'm, this is a true story I'm telling you. And the it's one of the first ships that left Seattle and headed up to the gold fields in 1898, and it gets just above Juneau, and it sinks. And it's in 1898, February of 1898. Ten years later, it comes back up. Now, I'd heard of a lot of ships that sink, but I had never, ever heard of a ship that came back up. So what I began doing is I went back to the newspapers, and I read the newspapers, and yeah, it sure did. In 1908, it did come back up. It sank in 20 feet of water, and then it, it, it came back up. But as I was reading it, because that was interesting to start with, as I was reading it, the more I read about it, the stranger it got. For instance, it was, take, it was taking 15 tons of gold, yet only one stick of dynamite went off, and it went off in the boiler room. Um, there's $17 million worth of gold. The ship sinks in 20 feet of water, but the gold is never found. And when they do diving back in 1916, they had a hard hat diver go down in 1916. This is, you know, 10 years, this is, what, 16 years, 18 years after the ship went down. He said that the interior, that the fires had started in the interiors in many different places at the same time. So I'm looking at that, and I'm saying to myself, this is really odd, and it sounds like a robbery. Yeah, scuttled. Right. So I said, okay, fine. If it's a robbery, now prove this is all, this is nonfiction now. So I'm saying to myself, if it's a robbery, you've got to prove it. It's easy to say it's a robbery. Proving it, it's a little different. So what happens is, is the ship goes down in 1898. There's a census in 1900. So I went through all of the newspapers and took all of the names of the captain and the crew and the passengers that I could find. And I went through the, uh, the census of 1900. And I come up with a captain, and he's got a brand-new steamboat up on the Yukon River. So I'm going, oh, okay. <laughs> so this is the kind of stuff I'm looking for, something that is different. I have never heard of a, of a ship coming back up, and this is a robbery. And then after that, I began studying the captain, and he has a speckled career. I mean, it's he and his wife got involved in an opium. This is, this is 1898 now. He and his wife got involved in an opium smuggling triangle, and she got killed and had to go to trial in San Francisco. I mean, and you start reading this stuff, and you're saying, this guy is really a bad guy. 
you wonder how that went unnoticed. Well, I'm, when you're a historian, you get to look at 100 years' worth of documents in six different places, so you can piece together a story. But a lot of times, you know, part of the story is in San Francisco, part of the story is in Seattle, part of the story is in Juneau. People didn't have the Internet in those days. Okay. And All don't right. forget, you're talking the middle of a gold rush. You're talking maybe 30 ships a day leaving Seattle. So one goes down, it, that's just the way it is. So that's why we need guys like you to pull all this stuff together. Now, sooner or later, all of the good stories. If you're looking, if you're reading, if your listeners are looking for a good story, go back to history. Start reading the old newspapers. You'd be surprised at what's there. Oh yeah. Now um, we're up against another break. So tell the folks again, real fast. Where can they find out more about Steve Levy, Levi? Goodness, I've got a complex now. No Steve, problem. Steve Levi. Steve Levi. Go ahead, Steve. com, And if you want to send me an email, Steve at com, and I will respond. I li- love talking to readers. Outstanding. This is Doug Dahlgren. We're going to a break on the prologue, and I'm going to put a picture of jeans up here on my computer so I won't forget it again. Okay. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back with the prologue on America's Web Radio. We're here this morning with Steve Levi. Steve has 80 books in print. One of those is a fantastic story. It is an impossible crime story, The Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound, and we've been having a great time talking about that. 
And also, before the break, we were discussing the difference between nonfiction and fiction. And Steve was telling us about how the greatest stories out there are sometimes nonfiction, the, the real history. But what I wanted to ask you, Steve, research is so much more difficult and daunting, really, for writers working in the nonfiction category, because if you make the tiniest mistake with your research, somebody out there is going to find it and call you out on it. Is that right? Yeah, and it's it's a little more, it's yes. And on top of that, what will happen is you will look at all these documents and you will come up with a conclusion that you think this is how it happened. And you'll write it up and then somebody will show up and they'll say, well, my grandfather was part of that group and here's his diary. And in his diary, he tells how it really happened, which had nothing to do. You know, you were completely wrong. And so you have to be prepared for that. Um. The, well, that's true. That, I mean, you know, it's just uh, like with what I do, if you if you write in there that somebody released a safety on a Glock, boy, you're going to catch heck in a heartbeat because Glocks don't have safeties. But, you know, it's just fiction, you can make stuff up. You know, you can, you can work yourself out of a corner or whatever, but with nonfiction, you really have to be careful. And uh, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that you did. What's some of the books in nonfiction uh, that you have out there for folks? The, uh, actually, when it comes to nonfiction, you're going to see more and more nonfiction uh, coming out because the Internet has made it possible to go ahead and, and get access to documents that you couldn't before. When I started doing nonfiction 30 years ago, you had to write, uh, you had to write archives and libraries and say, what do you have on this subject? And the book that you were going to write is going to be basically based on the people who, who answered your letters. Uh, now what happens is you can jump on the Internet and you can find documents and diaries and letters you know, in places that you didn't even know they existed. And even better than that is a lot of the newspapers are now online. So if you want to be looking to the Helena, Montana newspaper for you know, April, May, and June of 1936, you, know, you can get it online. You don't have to fly to Helena, Montana to get it. Absolutely. Well, that brings up another interesting area to talk about. Uh, A number of your books, you mentioned the Internet. There's a number of your books that are now in electronic format or what we refer to as Kindle. Do you believe, why do you believe that folks should actually buy an electronic book? Publishers, ink ink and paper publishers do not publish good books. They publish books they believe will sell. And so what happens is that when you start talking about dealing with a publisher that publishes ink and paper books, they're gambling that the people will buy a book that falls within a certain category, for a certain genre. Uh, I, earlier when we talked about murders, I said if you go into a bookstore, you'll find that mystery pretty much means murder. If you're looking for books on a heist, you'll have a hard time finding them in a uh, in a bookstore because the publishers don't believe that people buy that. Uh, people have been reading murder as mystery since Agatha Christie. The, uh, the e-books, the Kindle books, are great is because all of a sudden you can go ahead and write a book on a heist and people will be looking for it. Those people that want to look for it will find it. The, uh, the problem that you have with the e-books and the Kindle books is getting the word out that the book is available. Because when you start punching up mystery on Amazon, you'll get, you know, 30,000, 40,000 books. Now you have to go through to figure out which kind of book you're looking for, you know, and, and go ahead and order it. And then there's the question of do you want to read it 
on your computer or on a uh, on a cell phone, or do you want to read it as a hard copy? So, but we're at the beginning. Of, it's like a frontier right now, and those of us that are in the writing business know that. And what we're saying to ourselves is, we don't know which direction the industry is going. So we have to make sure that we have some e-books out, and we have some ink and paper books out, and we have some books that are available, you know, for a download. So we we really don't know where the industry is going. But the one thing that I know personally know for sure is that if you don't have something that's unique, you really don't have anything at all. You're just one of the crowd. Right. From that same technology that brings us the Kindles and the electronic format is also the print-on-demand. And some folks may not know what we're talking about there, but when you order a paperback from Amazon, that paperback usually doesn't exist at the point that you've ordered it, but it will exist within 24 hours because the files are all electronic and they can just print that book out one at a time. That's why they call it print-on-demand. Do you, do you going along with this theory, do you see that as having watered down the quality of the books that are available in print? Yes, it's watered down substantially is because anybody can upload anything. And if you don't, you know, the big problem that, that a lot of writers have is that they can write the book, but they can't find somebody that will proof it. They can get their wife to read it or a friend to read it. But you really do need a, a professional who will go through and say, look, this is, you know, you've got, a, you know, you got some bad grammar here. Now, what is- that does that does that does show up in the book, and then people say, "Well, you know, I read the book, and boy, they had a lot of you know, got a couple of words were missing, and some and some typos." What is your process? How do you go about before a submission? How do you go about editing or uh, proofreading your books? I do. I go ahead and what I do is I go ahead and finish the book, what I call a rugged draft, and then I put it aside. Because any time I've gone ahead and said, oh, this is a great book, I should go ahead and get it out, and I put it on the computer, and then six months later I look at it, and I find the computer has made all kinds of errors in that book. <laughs> and, and so you have to go through and do it again. It's not like I go through and do it five or six times, but uh, or how many times I go through, but I always have to have somebody else read it who isn't me, because they see things that I don't. Uh, my wife is exhausted from having to go through my book, so I have friends that are always willing to go ahead and read something. Uh, the fiction is easiest because they say, well, I really like the last one, you know, so when you come up with another one, let me know. Oh, yeah. Uh, nonfiction is a little different is because you want historians to read your historical book, and there just aren't that many historians. Well, this is Alaska now. There aren't that many historians up here. I've lived in Seattle. I could find myself a, a, a historian club. And which is one of the reasons I like Facebook now, because now on Facebook I have access to all kinds of Facebook pages that have members that will go ahead and read historical historical stuff. So on Alaska History, there's a whole bunch of people that I can get a hold of through a Facebook page saying, would you guys mind reading this? And they're saying, oh, if it's Alaska History, we don't have a problem with that at all. Oh, no. Now, I have eight books out. Your resume is tenfold what I have. So your experience level on this has got to be greater. You know the people out there who will read for content. You know the people out there who are picky about grammar. Do you target them in a particular order to have them proofread for you? Um, not so much. The people that, that will do it for me are doing it consistently, and I do a lot of uh, trading. I will read your book if you will read mine. Um, and so that you kind of develop a group of people who, who are – 
are pretty good at reading the book and being picky in the sense that they'll find errors that you can correct you know, before you put the book up online. The big thing is, in America right now, is that we have more and more people who are reading, but we have but the percentage of people is going down, and that's because a, a lot of people are looking for something that's quick and short rather than a novel. Okay. You mentioned a while ago newspapers. We were talking about the electronic mm-hmm. industry and all, and the, the good about newspapers, but actually uh, the, the printed newspapers are just going away. They're being hurt by the Internet and the availability of online papers. Uh, are, are you seeing that going to affect books the same way? Um, a bunch of things are happening with newspapers uh, if, and magazines. Is The newspapers and magazines that are failing are the ones that keep trying to do the same thing that newspapers have always done, which is to offer a quick snapshot of what's going on. Those that are doing well are the are the newspapers and magazines that are stopping to do that and are starting to do in-depth reporting. Because the one thing that the newspapers can do, for instance, the newspapers specifically can do that the Internet cannot, is to give you a complex story. And right now, there, there is a, well, since the beginning of time, there has been a direct relation between corruption and newspaper coverage. The more newspaper coverage you get, the less corruption you get in your community. And if you take a look at what was going on with Wells Fargo within the last week, is this never would have come, this never would have been uh, discovered if a newspaper hadn't gone after it in the first place. So I think the newspapers and magazine, that industry is going to change, and it's going to change because those newspapers and magazines that are going to survive are going to be spending more time doing investigative work and in-depth stories and less less of the general information. Because most people are getting their general information, their national information off Yahoo as it is. It's an excellent, excellent point. Uh, but uh, in our town, the newspapers shut their doors at 5 o'clock, so anything that happens at 6, you're going to either get it on cable news or you're going to get it two days late in the newspaper. That that doesn't help things. People don't really pay as much attention to the printed paper as they used to. Yes, but when you get when you get your name in the paper, it really means something in the local community. You get your name on television, that it doesn't really last that long. Because in the newspaper, you can cut out the article and you can put it on your refrigerator. Gotcha, gotcha. Understood. Let's go to another love of yours, history. Uh, writing about history is great for history buffs. They love it. But how do you make such a book interesting to all your readers? It's fairly easy if you come up with stuff that's that's different. If you open, if you go to Amazon and and look for a book on George Washington, you'll find tens of thousands of them. You know, we don't need one more book on George Washington, but there's a lot of stuff that's out there and real and interesting. And most people don't want to. Most a lot of writers don't want to spend the time to actually do the research. If you want to find something interesting, what you do is you go to your local library and go grab a month. On a, on a microfilm roll back, you know, just say May of 1950 in your local community and just start going through it. You're going to find all kinds of fascinating stories, you know, and there are local murders and there's corruption and strange things happening. Most people don't go back to the newspapers. What they do is they go ahead and they jump on the Internet and see if they can find a book or some, an article that somebody else wrote, but they will not go back to the original paperwork. Ah, 
Okay. And in many parts of the country, your uh, the National Archives is available within reasonable driving distance. And the thing to do is, which just like a mi- just like a minor, what you do is you go back and you say, okay, I'd like to see all of the uh, criminal files, you know, for this community from 1937 to 1939, and just start going through them. We're here in Alaska, and I was going through because marijuana just became legal here. And my question was, when was the first time somebody got arrested for marijuana in Alaska? So I went through the files. I started going, the first time that somebody got arrested was like 1918. <laughs> I think, oh, that's interesting. You know, All right. That's right in the middle of the First World War. So I went back and got up the file and read it. And it was interesting oh. because it was a sailor that had come off a ship, and he got arrested for smoking a joint. <laughs> okay, and that's a that's a very neat little, it's not a book, but it's a very neat little article that you can go ahead and write up and say, hey, here's a snapshot of history. They had the guy's picture, you know, and we're, the we're, arrest. And we're a little late on our last break here, Steve. We're going to have to cut in on you. I'm sorry. Okay, we're no here problem. With, we're here with Steve Levi. We're talking about his work, and we're going to be back with more after these messages. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back. My name is Doug Dahlgren. You're listening to the Prologue on America's Web Radio. Our guest today is Steve Levi. Steve is the author of 80 books. We've got fiction, we've got nonfiction, we've got impossible crimes in there. We've been talking with Steve about. The Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound, and I want you all to go to stevelevibooks.com and see how you can order a copy of that. And if you've had a chance to listen to the show, you're going to want to order more of Steve's books. We were talking about your take on history and how you make history interesting before that last break. There's a term you use, history is a tool, and you use that term quite a bit. Tell us what you mean about that. Uh, Since the beginning of time, humans have not changed. We are the same people we were in the cave. 
And the same problems that people have had since the beginning of time, we, st- we still have. So anytime you go through and you hit a problem in your life, whether it's your life or your business, start looking in the past because somebody has had to solve this problem before. And if you can figure out how they solved the problem before, then you can go ahead and solve the problem in the future. A lot of people just say, well, you know, history is just, that's just the past, and we're here today, and so if I have a problem, I have to solve the problem today. You know, but some of the problems, like, for instance, drugs, we've had drug problems since the beginning of time. You know, you're not going to be able to solve drug problems, but there are a lot of ways that people have dealt with drugs that's been effective. You know, and so what you should do is go back and find out, you know, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, how they handled some of these problems and how they solved some of them. Um, good example, one of the examples I use in my class is when you have a problem that you don't know how to solve, start turning it around and seeing if you can figure out another way to solve the problem. When they were building the Panama Canal, they were having a terrible problem because every time they started, every time they started digging into the jungle floor, it's all mud, and so as you get the mud out and you dig a hole in it, sooner or later what happens is the mud collapses back into the hole that you've been digging. And they were having a terrible time, and finally somebody said, wait a second, instead of digging down, we should be digging up. And everybody kind of, I'm sure everybody kind of said, well, what do you mean by digging up? And so what they did is rather than dig into the ground, what they did is they built a dam, and that's what Gatun Lake is today. So what happens is, rather than digging into the jungle, what they did is they went ahead and built a dam to create a lake. So they didn't have to dig into the jungle. That's very, very clever. Absolutely, and you're talking to a fellow that shaved out of his helmet in Gatun Lake. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was stationed down there for 18 months, but anyhow, that's, mm-hmm. that's another life ago. Listen, mm-hmm. on, on his, history, they say that the uh, Alaska Gold Rush was really the least studied era in American history. Why do you feel that's the case? Um, it's the least studied is because most people think that the Klondike Rush is the Alaska Gold Rush. The Klondike Rush is only about 14 months long, and it got a tremendous amount of newspaper coverage because there were newspapers there, and there were newspapers covering it in uh, San Francisco, Seattle, and Portland. And the Klondike Rush is only about 100 square miles. That's like we're talking 10, 10 miles by 10 miles. And it's only 14 months. The Alaska Gold Rush starts in 1880 and ends in 1940. So we're talking almost 70 years. And it's scattered over an area that's like 25% of the, the lower states, what, I call, what we call the lower 48. And there are these boom towns that would erupt from the, from the tundra, and they would be there for eight months, nine months, and the gold would run out, and people would just pack up and leave. And so we have ghost towns scattered all over Alaska. Sometimes the ghost towns had a newspaper, and sometimes the newspapers ran four or five issues, and then the town collapsed. We call it going ghost. It went ghost, and people moved on. So if you really want to do something on the Alaska Gold Rush, there are all of these newspapers that you have to read, and they're fascinating because they tell you stories about these little town names of people that meant absolutely nothing. We don't know where they went from after the town collapsed. We don't know where they came from in the lower 48, but here they were, and they were just, you know, you know, living a wild and woolly life in Alaska and then just disappeared from the pages of history. So when you start talking about the Alaska Gold Rush, it, it's been very difficult to do is because there's no consistency. You start talking about this guy in this one little town and he disappears from history. 
you wrote a book about all this. You, you call it the story of the Alaska Gold Rush, and that book was actually partially funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Now, that's quite an honor. How did that happen? Um, I'm always looking for grants, and one of the things, one of the advantages that I have is when I start asking for money, everything that I ask for is completely different. You know, people had not done anything on the Alaska Gold Rush when I when I did the, uh, that was an audio tape. And nobody had done anything on it, and there were a lot of students in Alaska, you know, who knew very, very little, almost nothing about the Alaska Gold Rush, in spite of the fact they were living in towns that were founded during the Alaska Gold Rush. And when you start going back to the papers, once again, the newspapers, you go back and you find about all kinds of interesting things that happened that uh, nobody knows about it because they haven't read the papers. If there's any one thing I can say to the listeners now, if you're really looking for a good idea, go back in history. Go back and get a newspaper, make it 50 years ago, and start reading it. You will be amazed at this kind of stuff that was happening. Super. Listen, you live in Anchorage. We're running out of time, so I'm going to start rapid fire here. You're in, in Anchorage. Anchorage is really fairly metropolitan, is it not? Yes, yes and no. We are about if you want to if you eliminate the base and the and the bedroom community, we're three hundred thousand people. But we're also six hundred we're four hundred miles from the next nearest town, which is half our size. But don't forget we only have three hundred thousand people in town, but during the summer we'll see one point two million people come through. All right, so it's a small area. You published a couple of years ago a book called Walrus with a Gold Tooth. So right. a history of that area. Why would folks from the lower 48, as you call it, find this book interesting? It's a fascinating book, particularly if you are into uh, urban history, is because we did not have organized crime up here until the 1970s. And when Alaska, don't forget, it's, it's important to, to know that Anchorage, specifically the Walrus of the Gold Tooth, is a fictionalized history of Anchorage. Between the Second World War and the Pipeline, Okay, between 1945, actually the earthquake, 1964, Anchorage will increase, its population will increase by a factor of 10. So it will go from around 3,000 to about 45,000. There was unbelievable amounts of money that was up here for all kinds of different reasons, but the organized crime never got into Alaska. And that was one of the things in the lower 48 is that you have a town increasing that fast with that much money, you will have organized crime. But we didn't in Alaska. And I was fascinated by that because I'm going, how is it that they were able to keep organized crime out? Because it wasn't, wasn't an organized effort, but we did. And there were a lot of reasons for that. And the biggest reason is the Alaskans just were not willing to put up with it. And this book is Walrus with a Gold Tooth. That's also available on your website. Is that right? That is true. All right. And folks, once again, that's Steve Levi Books. Dot com. I want you to go there right. and look up this and all of all of Steve's books. Now, uh, there's a couple of other historical books that I've got to ask you about. Cowboys in the Sky and Bush Flying. Uh, seems like you've got a fantasy with uh, bush pilots. Are you a pilot yourself? No, uh, but I was fascinated with the bush pilots is because these guys are the original frontiersmen of the sky. And these guys are flying in the worst weather that North America has to offer over the most rugged terrain America has to offer. And if you, it's hard to explain to people in the lower 48, but in Alaska, one-third of our population lives in the bush. And the bush is someplace that you cannot drive to. You have to fly to it. 
So if you're doing anything in Alaska that has to do with Alaskans, sooner or later you're going to have to get in a little tiny plane and you're going to have to fly five, six hundred miles to a little tiny village. And that is still the way that it is today. Oh, man. But these guys that are originally flying, these guys flew with a compass. That's it. They didn't have any of this other information. Compass they didn't and have a sandwich. Other... I'm sorry I stepped on you. you no know, problem. That, that, was, that was flying the way uh, the, the fellows in small towns talk about. Listen, your, your character in the book that we're here to talk about, The Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound, Captain Noonan, is there more to come from him? You mentioned a new book. Is he going to be involved with the new book you're working on? Yes, he is, and it's uh, the matter of the deserted aircraft, and hopefully it'll be out by the end of the year. And it's a, uh, a he gets called in to solve a problem where a plane lands at the Anchorage International Airport. Passengers, crew, and pilot got on in in Seattle, and when the plane lands in Anchorage, there is no pilot, there are no crew, and there are no uh, passengers. And then they get a call that the that the passengers are held hostage and the the bad people want $25 million in diamonds. Wow. And so, once again, Noonan has to solve how it is that they were able to get a plane to fly with no pilot and what happened to the passengers. Well, folks, we wanna, we're going to look for that, and, Steve, we're going to hold you to coming back when that one's out, and we'll talk more in detail. And thank you very much for the uh, interview. Listen, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on and to learn about you and your books I thank you very much again for being on this hour. Now, listeners, the ball's in your court. I want you to go look up Steve Levi on Amazon and his website. Again, that's stevelevibooks.com, and I want you to start enjoying his great work. Now, if you or anybody else would like to be a guest on the prologue, please have them contact me, Doug, at americaswebradio.com or Doug at dougdahlgren.com. That's about it for this hour. The clock has been cruel to us again, Steve. I want to thank you once more for being a guest. For myself and for Steve Levi, I want to say be good to yourselves and each other. Read a book. Hopefully it will be one of Steve's. If not, maybe you'll pick one of mine. And I'll see you folks again in just 167 hours. Take care now. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.